Turn in your Bibles to John. We're getting back into the Gospel of John. We're going to cover some territory in John chapter 4. Of course, you might have your Bible titling it already or subtitling it, The Woman at the Well. It doesn't cover the whole chapter, but it covers a great chunk of it. And uh, so we'll cover this pretty familiar event that took place. And just because we're familiar with it, I don't want to uh, skip it or neglect it. But I do want to give it some attention because I think there's some things in here that we could really leave the building. Of course, you're the church. The church can leave the building and maybe go out into a world a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more maybe open the eyes of my heart as a song that we sang. God, open the eyes of my heart so I could see I could see women at the well, metaphorically speaking, people that have had broken relationships and broken hearts and uh, maybe kind of just tossed aside or maybe they're a marginalized group like the Samaritans, you know, that they're kind of, kind of the religious outsiders and uh, just kind of looked down upon or avoided. And so we're going to be looking at the woman at the well kind of from those types of lenses and we'll see the way Jesus uh, relates to her and the situation and then hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get to the rest of that in the weeks to come. But if you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, John 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, his popularity was growing. Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples did. We'll talk about that a little bit because Jesus didn't baptize anyone, although he didn't baptize anyone with water that's recorded, but he did, of course, as John the Baptist alluded to, he baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Spirit. And so, of course, Jesus is always baptizing people by his Spirit uh, for those that receive him. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again unto Galilee. So, He's kind of avoiding maybe another squirmish or uh, engagement with the Pharisees who were not too keen on the idea that Jesus is growing in popularity. And now that John is decreasing and Jesus is increasing, um, they're turning up the heat on Jesus and they're, they're kind of rubbing their long, untrimmed beards you know, and saying, what are we going to do with this guy? Verse 4, he must needs go through Samaria. So he departed Judea and departed again to Galilee, and then he went through Samaria. Now this is very interesting because history records that the routes that the Jews took, if they were to go to the same destination that Jesus was heading to, would avoid Samaria altogether. They would take the long way around. Just to make a point, they have no dealings with these half-breed religious rejects that they consider religious rejects, the Samaritans. And then he comes to the city of Samaria. Now, Jesus does this on purpose, right? He, he's not going to skirt this marginalized people group <coughs> because he's a whosoever will God. And so he's going into all the world, at least in his area of influence here. And he's coming to, uh, then he comes to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And we'll look into that here in a little bit. Now Jacob's well was there. 
Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, we also know from Jesus that he says, isn't there 12 hours in the day where man could work? So if you just do basic math, sun comes up around six in the morning, sun goes down around six at night, right? So the sixth hour would be about what time? Noon, right? So it's about noon. So he's been traveling for some time, and he's tired. Jesus gets tired. He's God in a bod, but that bod gets tired, right? He hungered. He thirsted. He slept uh, in the back of a boat. Sometimes he'd have to sequester himself and get away from the groups and just recharge with him and his father. And, and so you see the humanity of Jesus here where he just wants to sit down and get a drink. And so um, there, come, there came a woman uh, of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy some food. Now, I think this is interesting. All the disciples, were they Jews or Gentiles? They were all Jews. So do you think they had been culturized to think that the Samaritans are kind of this minority, reject, disposable uh, people group? Yes, but Jesus says, I'm not going around, I'm not skirting this people group, I'm going right into this people group, and then they went right into town to buy food. So now they're doing commerce and business with the people that they would altogether avoid if they had their choice, but it must be because Jesus has been discipling them that he's teaching them the value of one blood of all nations, God made all people of one blood of all nations. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So no doubt Jesus has been imparting his non-biased, non-prejudiced, non-racist um, viewpoint to the disciples who they, just, they went into town to, to buy food. Verse 9, Then said the woman uh, of Samaria to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me? which am a woman of Samaria. So now he's, she's bringing up two issues. First, the gender issue, which Jesus breaks down as well. So he's one, Jesus to this woman, and they're, by, they're there, and he's having a dialogue, which was uncustomary. And so, you know, man to woman was a no-no, and then Jew to Samaria was a no-no. And she's bringing this up because obviously she's felt that oppression uh, and how she had been treated and so she asked the question and Jesus answered and said unto her if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says unto you give me to drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water now this is going to be very similar to the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus in chapter three remember Nicodemus only thought of physical birth He's like, how could I be born again a second time and enter into my mother's womb? And Jesus, he said, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said you must be born again, right? So keep in mind when Jesus is, is teaching things, he's, he's using physical earthly examples of spiritual heavenly truths, which is what a parable usually ends up being. So He's talking about living water. Now look at how the woman responds. The woman says unto him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. From where then do you have this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, 
and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Now we'll pick this up, Jacob's well, because I think there's something interesting that Jesus would stop at this particular well, talk to this particular woman, and then bring up the subject of marriage. Because in Genesis 29, something takes place with Jacob, who left his home not to go to this well, but something happened at this well. And we'll, we'll get into that. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Obviously, right? Biologically speaking, Gatorade is thirsted for that deep down body thirst. It's like, does it, like, if it really, if you could only buy one Gatorade and be done with it, good marketing, right? But the fact is, you, you have to drink physical liquid every day. But obviously, Jesus is not talking about physical H2O. And he's trying to teach that to her. But she's just physical. She's just operating in the tangible world. And so she's asking very logical questions. And so Jesus is trying to elaborate. Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give unto him, verse 14, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come to this draw. And could you imagine, okay, you might think it's an inconvenience to stop at a convenience store, get out of your car, put your mask on, go in, find, you know, with all the, the bevy of beverages, <laughs> the bevy of bevies, to choose from, you, you pick one, you go to the counter, you swipe your card, you're on your way. That's our, that's, that's, or you go to your tap and you turn on your faucet. You're like, ooh, tap water, gross. <laughs> but could you imagine traveling hours and hours and hours if you even had some sort of animal skin device or container to hold your liquid, do you think it would be cold and refreshing? What if it was grape juice, unrefrigerated grape juice? What happens then? Yeah. So no matter what type of liquid you had at that day with no refrigeration and no convenience stores, going to the well, you could imagine how she's thinking about this. Yeah, I would like to not come to this well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, and draw, and she said the well's super deep. So it's probably not that easy to go all the way down and then pull it all the way back up again and then to transport it from one container to another. And so, of course, she's thinking physically. And Jesus said unto her, um, as she says, verse 15, yeah, give me this water, sign me up. And then look what Jesus does. I think this is very interesting. He brings up marriage. Now, when Jesus says, go and call your husband to come hither, He's not asking for information. You know what he's driving at? Confession. Anytime Jesus asks a question, it's never for information. Why? Because he knows everything. So don't think like Jesus is asking to gain some knowledge. He's not. He's always asking for confession. So the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you have said, you have answered well. I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband, in that you said truly. Interesting. I don't want to really talk about this, but in passing, 
if Jesus acknowledges five husbands and the guy that she's sleeping with and shacking up right now is not her husband, what were the, what were the other five relationships then according to Jesus? Legitimate or illegitimate marriages? Seems to be legitimate marriages because Jesus is acknowledging you had five legitimate marital husbands, however that happened, and I doubt they all died, right? Like you died and you married the brother, you died. She probably had, she's, she's had, there's a pattern obviously with this woman. She's had five husbands, according to Jesus, five legit marriages, but her current situation and living with this guy, she's not married. She's just living with him. And so, look at what happens. Verse 19, the woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So the attention is on her immoral lifestyle, not her other five husbands. Jesus said, that's fine. But the one you're with now is not your husband. Not fine. She knows this. So she's going to switch the subject, right? Remember, in order to get saved, you need to first see yourself lost. Jerry and I were talking about Ten Commandments uh, before church, and uh, Ray Comfort uses them wonderfully. Um, and I've heard people use the way of the master down at Huntington Beach lately, too, and I'm like, oh, cool. Um, you know, and so you know, she's got to see herself as an adulterer, right? And she's got to see herself as a sinner that's come short of the glory of God. And I think she recognizes that, and so she then changes the subject. I perceive you're a prophet. Let's get the light off of me and onto another uh, area. And so she says this, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem it's the place where men ought to worship. Wait a second, we were just talking about the guy you were living with. How did we go from the guy you're shacking up with to where, where the temple should be? I'm just going to say this in passing and we'll come back to it you'll notice the more you engage with people about their need for Jesus, you're going to find this. And I want you to see this because you're going to find that people will talk about the place that you go to church, the denomination that you're associated with, the Bible version that you read. They'll talk about, any, they'll talk about prophecy. They'll talk about the Antichrist rather than Jesus Christ. They'll talk about doctrine, theology, They'll talk about what seminary you may have attended or not. They'll talk about the church down the road, the church their Mima and Peepaw used to go to. They'll talk about anything other than them as a sinner and their need is for a savior. Amen. That's what they'll do. Amen, Sean. And I just want you to recognize it because I think a lot of times we, have, we, we are so intimidated by engaging because don't talk about religion and politics. And we're so intimidated that when we finally engage with someone and they say, oh, you guys are that church down the road. You could just put a new cross up there. Man, it's backlit. Are those LEDs? Yeah, those are LEDs. How'd you hang it up there? Well, a couple crazy guys from church got up on some big ladders and hung that monstrosity up there. That looks really good. Okay, see you later. You thought you just talked about Jesus. They diverted you. <laughs> and I just want you to see it because that's what she's trying to do, right? She's trying to get the attention off of her need as a sinner and her need for a savior. 
And so she wants to talk about the place of worship rather than the person of worship. So Jesus knows this. Uh, Where are we supposed to worship? On this mountain or some other? Jesus said unto her, woman, not derogatorily, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We Uh, We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And we'll get into this, uh, hopefully, but really there's two two places of worship. The Samaritans had theirs, the Jews had theirs. And of course, um, Jesus is referring to not that the temple is the way of salvation, but God set it up to point to the person of salvation. Because all the blood of the lambs and all the blood that was shed was only a picture to point to the person. That's why that's legit. Not that that's going to save anyone, but that was pointing to the one who would save them and who could save them. He says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. In other words, Jesus knows the veil's going to be rent, the temple the temple's going to be gone away, and he's going to go to that cross and uh, shed his blood once and for all, ma- making a final end to the old covenant and introducing and ushering in the new covenant based on the blood of a better eternal sacrifice, as it says in Hebrews. He says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus, he's talking about not physical water, but living water. Not necessarily the place of worship, but the person of worship, God. And he says, you must have the spirit, just as he's told Nicodemus, you must have the spirit in order to be a true worshiper. The woman said unto him, it's not up on the screen, I know, uh, but verse 25 and 26, the woman said unto him, I know that the Messiah is going to come, which is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus answered her and said, I that speak unto you am he. Boom. <laughs> yeah, he's the Messiah. So let's pray, and then we'll look at some of these thoughts. Lord Jesus, thank you that we could gather in this building and be back in the building. I thank you for our opportunity to gather outside as well. However we gather, Lord, when we leave, I pray that we leave here changed internally. Something that you've taught us by your spirit, something that you've maybe realigned or adjusted or shed some light on so that we could leave here encouraged, not only uh, blessed, but going from here and being a blessing uh, to this world that's hungry and thirsty for this everlasting, eternal water and life that we have. And I thank you, Jesus, that we could gather in your name, and I pray this in your name. Amen. So in the first few verses, baptism. I just want to point this out, and I know you know this, but baptism does not wash away your sins, um, nor does it save you. And I know I know most of you don't believe that. If people believe that baptism saves you, I agree with them. I say, yeah, I agree with you. Baptism of the Spirit. Yeah, totally. I've been baptized by the Spirit, for sure. And I've been baptized by water. But if I've been baptized by the Spirit and never baptized by water, I'm going with my spirit baptism, right? <laughs> so I, I don't, I'm not belittling water baptism at all, but sometimes we put such a premium on it uh, that it's some, somehow the baptismal waters are magical and they wash away your sins. They could never wash away your sins. It's a picture, it's an outward picture 
of an inward conversion that your sins have already been washed away. But these verses where Jesus is making this journey, I I said it before, but he needed to go through Samaria. And although the road through Samaria was the shortest route to Galilee, the pious Jews avoided it. They avoided it because there was a deep distrust and dislike between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus is an equal opportunity savior, and he wants to take the disciples there and show them love and give them love. But note that John is decreasing and the Lord is increasing. So the reason why Jesus takes off is because the Pharisees now are putting their focus on Jesus, and they're saying, look, he's getting more disciples than John. John was a problem and a thorn in their side, but now Jesus is becoming a a greater threat to their job security as a religious leader. Interesting. Jesus was gaining more and more popularity. um, And it's interesting to note that Jesus was not baptizing people himself, but rather teaching people about the kingdom of God. And so, like I said before, people uh, have idolized their baptism, and they would have idolized it, especially if Jesus did it himself. Could you imagine you were baptized by Bartholomew and the other guy is baptized by Jesus? Which one would you rather have? <laughs> right? Oh, you've been baptized by Bart? Lame. <laughs> you know, I've been baptized by the Messiah, the Master. Um, so people would have, I think that's why Jesus, uh, you know, excluded himself from not being the one to do that. And people have mistakenly Uh, thought that you are saved by a ceremony, uh, but you're not. You're only saved by the Savior, by faith alone and Christ alone. So only Christ in you makes you a Christian. Not what's done on the outside of you, but what's done on the inside of you makes you a Christian. Let me illustrate it this way. If I wore a Rams jersey, let's would that make me an NFL player if I just put on the jersey? How many of you know the NFL started again? Isn't it weird? I just think it's so weird. How many of you knew that it's the, it's the NBA like uh, conference finals right now? Everything is just so crazy. I didn't even know the NBA was playing, and now they're already in the f- almost to the, the final finals. I just think it's crazy. Um, but back to the point. If I threw on a helmet and a jersey, that wouldn't make me an NFL player, right? Um, what about this? If I wore a Canadian hat <laughs> and I sang the Canadian national anthem and I just chugged gallons of maple syrup and I always put Canadian bacon, hold the pineapple on my pizza. No, I like the pineapple. I don't have, know what that has to do with the pizza, but... That wouldn't make me a Canadian. You, you, you know where I'm going with this, but let's, let's, let's kind of go a little further, make the point. If I slept in a Harley-Davidson motorcycle shop, would that make me a motorcycle? No. If I sat in IHOP, you know they changed their name. What is it now? They're trying to do something different. It used to be called what? The International House of Pancakes. And I love it in Southern California, too. They're usually, they used to be the ones with the big, sharp, uh, pitched uh, roofs. But if I sat at IHOP, it wouldn't make me a stack of pancakes, right? So let's change gears, though. If I said to you, 
that guy has the spirit of, go to the next slide, that guy has the spirit of, go to the, the picture, Dale Earnhardt. What would you think of? How many NASCAR fans are in here? One. And that was kind of like up and down. And then they went, they went rogue. You don't know who that was. I'm not going to point him out. Um, I've never followed NASCAR. I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, but I do, know the, I do know the name Dale Earnhardt, right? Kind of a legend in that uh, sporting event. Is that a sport? Anyways. Um, so if that guy had the spirit of Dale Earnhardt, you would think of certain characteristics of that individual. If that person had the spirit of, see if you can name this next guy. Turn the next slide. What's that? Who painted it? Yeah, so Michelangelo. So that, if that guy had the spirit of Michelangelo, if Rick has the spirit of Michelangelo, I'm like, that Rick right there has the spirit of Michelangelo. You would think, that guy's probably a talented artist, right? If that guy or that woman had the spirit of, what's the next one? Who's this? Michael Jordan. Look at the hops on that guy, man. He is just up there. So you'd think, well, that guy's obviously good at basketball. You know, he's, he, if I said, that guy is, is characterized by Michael, he's got this, he's just invoked the spirit of Jordan in him. You would think one thing. You would just think one thing, right? What about this next one? That guy has the spirit of, I golf like twice a year and I always invoke the spirit of Tiger Woods and it never works, ever. I lose balls, I get mad, I hit one good shot only, and it makes me think, well, I'll go six months from now. Nah. Um, I am just not good at golf, but Steve, who's not here, uh, invites me, and Joe, who's not here today, uh, invited me, and so I went to display my non-Tiger skills. But if you had the spirit of Tiger Woods, you would definitely be identified with a good golf player. I think I got a, one or two more, and you're getting the idea. What about this guy? I did this for Jen. She's not even here. Oh, there she is. Who's that guy? If you had the spirit of GR, right, of the Ramses, Ramses is number one. If you had the spirit of Gordon Ramses, <laughs> look, I'm pointing back at him, you would think what? That guy's, a, that guy's a, that woman, she's a chef. I think my wife has the spirit of Ramses uh, in her, you know, she's a really good cook. And she does well. Now, let's go to the next slide. If I said to you that person has the spirit of Christ, now what are you thinking? What kind of characteristics? What kind of, what would, what would typify, what would identify your life? If I were to do that with all those other icons and legends of their field, and I were to say that person as a spirit of Christ. You'd think, like, sacrificial, peace, gentleness, meekness, goodness, temperance, patience, joy, love, right? You would think of the fruit of the Spirit. You'd think of the characteristics of Christ. And so what I'm saying is this. If I said to you that person has the spirit of Christ in them, now we're talking about a Christian who is characterized by the one who resides in them. 
that person then must have been baptized by the Spirit of Christ. Because the word baptizo, it means to be immersed or identified with. When you get baptized in water, that's why we teach that you're fully immersed. Because it's a picture of the reality that happened to you. But when you get baptized by Christ, when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, and he moves into your life, you get fully immersed by his spirit. You get fully identified with his life. You get fully united with Christ. And so you could say, that person has the spirit of Christ. That person has the Lord Jesus. And so hopefully our lives then will match the spirit that's within us. It will be reflective in the way that we live and our our characteristics as they come out. Now, this issue of baptism, though, Paul dealt with this quite often. And Paul had to clear this up to the Corinthians who said, I'm baptized by this guy. I'm baptized by that guy. And here's what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 17. In the verses before this, he says, I'm glad I baptized none of you except a couple. And he says, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made none effect. I'm not belittling baptism, nor is Paul belittling baptism, but he's not making it to the point where it's the main thing. You know what he's making the main thing? He wasn't sent to go dunk people all the time. He was sent to preach the gospel. And if they receive Christ and then he baptizes them, fine. But baptism, water baptism doesn't save you. Hearing the gospel and believing uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that saves you. Then get baptized. right? Then, then follow the Lord and believer's baptism. But I just wanted to kind of put a... Maybe a perspective on that. So in John 4, our text, from verses 4 to 15, we kind of see this theme here where Jesus is the living, eternal water source. And as I mentioned, he's at Jacob's well. He's on this six-hour journey. It's in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. He sits down. There's no, nothing cool to drink. Um, He's at this well. It's in Samaria. They, it's a place that's uh, always avoided, but Jesus goes right to it and right to the middle, smack dab in the middle of it, uh, to Jacob's well. I don't think by coincidence. Now, in Genesis 29, you could read, go back to Genesis 27, 28, and 29, but you'll remember that um, in Genesis 29 that Isaac wants his son who really chick, tricked, remember he got the, he got the blessing uh, and he, he connived his way into getting his father's blessing. And let me just say this, to get, the, to get the father's blessing was to mean that you got the double portion because you were to become the priest of the family, which means he had more livestock and more cattle because he's to do more sacrifices. But what was all that pointing to anyways? Esau wanted nothing to do with his birthright. You know what that kind of indicates to me, even though Jacob was a, like a kind of a snaky conniver manipulator, you know what that kind of also indicates to me is that he believed in the Lord Jesus where Esau could take it or leave it. I think that's kind of interesting. Now, I don't want anything to do with my birthright. Why? Because the birthright means that you're to be the high priest of the family at the time before there was, you know, the temple and everything. Um, and, you're to, and that whole thing was to point to there is a priest that's going to sacrifice, and that sacrifice is to point to Jesus. And Esau said, I don't want anything to do with it. I'll just go 
I'll just go deer hunting. I'll just eat venison. I'll just kind of do my, my thing, my hobby. And you do your thing with, with your whole priest thing and the, you know, the family faith. And you go ahead and carry on the tradition. I don't want anything to do with it. So though we kind of degrade Jacob, he still had faith. I think he's, he had faith that Jesus was, was coming. So his dad said, I don't want you to ha- pick a wife from this area. I want you to go uh, to where I came from. And so he, he sends him from home to go find a wife, right? Because now he's, he's got the blessing. He's going to be the one to carry on the torch of the family. So he wants him to find uh, a good wife. And I want to say this before I get into that. The Bible opens with the bride and a groom. Genesis opens with the bride and a groom. The Bible closes with the bride and a groom. Revelation 22. Jesus and his bride, the church. Opens with the bride and a groom. Closes with the bride and a groom. Jacob, who came from Isaac and Abraham, um, is the father of Israel. In fact, his name is changed to Israel, as you know. So Israel, the nation, comes from Jacob, but he had to get a wife. So he was instructed to leave his father and his home and to go out in search of a wife. When Jacob was in search of his wife, he found Rachel at the very well where Jesus is now sitting. Interesting. It's also interesting that the Lord Jesus left his father and left heaven to come to earth and to find a bride for himself. Now, Don't think physical like Nicodemus and the woman at the well. You know the bride is spiritual, meaning the church, right? All those that put their faith alone in in Christ alone. So he's in search. It's also referred to as sheep, uh, you know, where the the wheat. Uh, There's many analogies Jesus gives. But he left heaven and his father was kind of commissioned to go out to earth and to get a bride, And now he's at this well where Jacob was sent out by his father to leave his home. And once, if you read the story in Genesis 29, there's a large stone on this well and he's um, helping his future brother-in-law who he didn't didn't know. And he's uh, feeding the, or watering the sheep and everything. Then he sees Rachel and some translations see after they have this conversation, he kissed Rachel. It's almost like a love at first sight thing at this well where Jesus is now, could have went the other way as it was, but he went to this well, sat down, middle of the day, Samaritan woman comes, Jesus left heaven from his father in search of a bride, and the first thing he brings up to this woman is, where's your husband? Interesting. So he starts this conversation with this Samaritan woman about marriage and her husband, but Jesus is not seeking a physical wife, obviously, but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, the lost of the world. In other words, Jesus is the bridegroom in search of a bride made of born-again believers, such as yourselves. Jesus is the bread of life coming to seek and to satisfy those that are hungry. Jesus is the light of the world coming to give eternal light to our darkness. Jesus is our vision coming to give sight to those who can't see. Jesus is the living word coming to give a voice to God so that we could hear. And in this scenario, Jesus is the water of life coming to satisfy a parched and thirsty world. Let me just say this, and I know you know this, but I want to bring it up again because if it wasn't 
If it didn't apply to you, it applies to everyone that's not in this building today that doesn't have a relationship with Christ. And that is this. We all have that internal itch that only a relationship with the Creator can scratch. I'll read the verses again in John 4, 12. He says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank? Jesus answered and said, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give them shall be in them a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so that physical analogy of you drink, you're going to have to drink again, you're going to have to drink again, you're going to have to drink again, you always are going to need to drink. And Jesus says, but if you drink of this water, which is faith in Christ, You'll be eternally satisfied. You'll never thirst again if, not obviously physical drink, but you'll never spiritually thirst again. You'll be quenched when you have a relationship with Christ. When you you receive Christ, you will never hunger or thirst for anything less than God. Look, I'm not going to settle for something less than God. What, do I want to start a relationship with Allah, Krishna, Buddha? They're not going to satisfy, you know what I mean? So when you have a relationship with Christ, all other gods with a little g is inferior to the one true God with the big G. That's why I don't hunger and thirst for anything else. I have. Now, I grow in, in the grace and knowledge of Christ, but I'm not looking for another Christ. I have the well, I, and you do too. So Christ eternally satisfies that hunger and thirst. And unfortunately, we all have at one point, or maybe we still do, repeatedly scratch upon things and drink things of the world that leave us empty and never satisfied. But we who have Christ have the answer for a world that is still hungering and thirsting after uh, people, places, and things that will never scratch or quench that eternal itch, that internal itch. Here's what F.B. Meyer says, quote, he says, the living water is not a significant or not a stagnant pond or well, but leaps up from a hidden spring. The woman keeps referring to the well, Jesus to the spring in the well. That alone can satisfy, not the, wor- not the word, but the spirit in the word, not the right, but the grace it symbolizes. You first drink for your own need, then you help to meet the need of others. It's much like when you're flying on an airplane, you know, the oxygen comes down, <laughs> first put it on you and then help people around you. So if you don't have this water of life, get it and then go out and give it. Next part of this quote, Jesus Christ is the gift of God the richest token of God's love, the source and fountain of those living waters, the graces of the Holy Spirit which satisfy the thirsting soul and make a life overflowing with goodness. Those who come face to face with their own helplessness and sin and give their hearts to him will be the recipients of these living waters. Amen. It's true for you. It's true for others that don't have him. Jesus was alluding to this in John 7 It'll be on the screen, but verse 37, in that last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this about the spirit, which they who believed on him should receive. Look at the future tense. 
For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he didn't go to the cross, uh, bury, rise again, and then promise the Holy Spirit to whoever would receive him. That's what Jesus is saying. Same book. Water, Holy Spirit, spiritually speaking. If you believe on him, you would receive it. The culmination of the Bible, Revelation 21, he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who thirsts, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. I I think it's in Isaiah 45. I have to go back and check. But he says, it's it's an invitation that you that do not have money, uh, in other words, don't have resources, come and um, take of the food or receive of the water. I forget what, maybe someone could look it up or I'll look it up later. But it just reminds me, it's free, it's free, it's free, and it's, it's everlasting, and it's, it's eternally quenching. Revelation twenty two seventeen towards the very end of the Bible. And look, I said the Bible opens with the bride and the groom, the Bible closes with the bride and the groom, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one hearing say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and whoever is willing, let them take of the water of life freely. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, male, female, young, old, poor, rich, bond or free. Doesn't matter. Jesus is a whosoever will (coughs) Savior. And so lastly, let's kind of close this thing up by looking at Jesus as the object of worship. Jesus as the object of worship. Now, in John... um, 420, uh, the Samaritan woman makes this comment. Hey, Jesus, right? I perceive you're a prophet. You're talking about my morality here. The guys that I were married and the guy that I'm sleeping with now. And you're putting light on my personal life. Well, I, I think you're a prophet. So let me ask you this. Where are we supposed to worship? On this mountain where he was at or Jerusalem? Now, Albert Barnes on this, on this mountain, he comments in his commentary, it's not on your screen, I'll just read it, Mount Gerizim, which is where she's referring to, is only a little way from Sikar. On this mountain, they had, the Samaritans had built a somewhat similar temple to the one built in Jerusalem. This was one of the main subjects of controversies between uh, the Samaritans and the Jews. The Old Samaritan Pentateuch, which is just the five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, had the word Gerizim instead of Ebal translated in Deuteronomy 27.4. So it was on this account, as well as because the patriarchs are mentioned as having worshipped there, they suppose that that was the proper place in which to erect a temple. So there was this controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they built a temple very similar to the one that the Jews had. The only thing of it is, when I was thinking about this, is like, okay, Samaritans, you've got the Pentateuch, which has the law, which also tells you that there's a particular priest from a particular tribe that could only do these sacrifices in a particular way on a particular day from a particular age group, from a particular man at a certain time of the year. How are you pulling that off? So you're going to, you're going to like kind of 
potpourri some of the law and some of your own things and kind of mix match. It sounds like how a lot of people operate. You know, we'll just, we'll just kind of do this in the name of the God and we'll hope it works, right? And Jesus says, no, no, I mean, it's not the way it is. The, the Jewish temple is legitimate, the legitimate temple. So he shuts that argument down. But you could imagine that she's a little bit confused because she was raised that way and you know, they're like the second-class citizens of the Middle East, according to the Jews. They're not, according to Jesus, but they are according to the culture. And so the woman says in John 4, 19, Sir, uh, sir I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain. You say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And the thing that I want to bring up on this point is deflection and smoke screens. You guys that are from the military would know this better than me, but might have been World War II, maybe even earlier, where when there would be naval fleets out and about, they would have planes come by and lay a bunch of smoke as to hide their location. Um, and this is actually a, a thing that I took off the internet where this is a home safety device. You could actually buy smoke screens to where if your alarm is tripped or there's an intrusion, Put a, put a thing of smoke so you could hide. You know, when people breach uh, situations where they're trying to apprehend uh, criminals, they'll throw in, uh, you know, smoke to deflect and to hide and stuff like that. The point being is this. I'm just saying that she's bringing up the place of worship as a smoke screen. She's just trying to deflect. She's just trying to hide the fact that he knows everything about her life and she doesn't like that personal intrusion, so to speak. I'm just going to make some closing thoughts here on that. It's always easier to speak about the place of worship rather than the person of worship. It's always easier to talk about the church building rather than the head of the church, Christ. It's always easier to talk about the plan of salvation rather than the person of salvation. It's always easier to speak of blessings rather than the blesser himself. It's always easier to talk about denominations, doctrine, theology, and religion rather than a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the woman was doing just that, and Jesus knew that. So he switches the subject back to the person of worship. John 4, 23 and 24. Jesus says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship. Now, I think Jesus knew that the old covenant was going to go away, the temple was going to go away, and Jesus was going to be the object of worship. And in order to be connected with him, you need to have faith in him, to have his spirit, to be baptized by him, to be born again. Remember, he was talking to Nicodemus. He was a religious lost person. And John chapter 4, and now he's talking to the Samaritan. She's just a sinner, right? Just kind of sleeping around sinner. We have the religious self, uh, the, the lost self-righteous one, and now you have the, the sinner who's also lost, and they both need God's grace. And so he puts it back and he says, look, there's not going to be an argument of which temple or which place or which mountain because the Father's looking for true worshipers to worship him and to have a relationship with him <coughs> on spirit and truth. Now, I want to close with this. On the topic of worship, I believe there's only three kinds of worship. You might have some subcategories here, but I'm tr just trying to keep it simple. I believe there's false worship, there's vain worship, and there's true worship, which is what Jesus is after. False worship is this. I think it's up there. 
worshiping the wrong God in the wrong way, right? You make an idol, uh, you bow down to it, uh, whatever. There's false worship all across the globe. Vain worship is probably something that we would be more apt to degrade to if we were. You're probably not going to, you know, worship the sun god or Ra or Baal or whatever. You're probably not going to fall for that. What you would be tempted and I'd be tempted is vain worship, worshiping the right God but in the wrong way. It's like the Samaritan woman. She had the right God, but she was going about it the wrong way. Wrong temple, wrong priesthood, wrong everything. But you got the right God. You're just going about it in the wrong way. You're going about it in your own terms. And true worship would be worshiping the right God in the right way. Right? That's what God's after. And so, what do we do with this? If I was just to talk about vain worship, I'm going to close with this passage and then we'll wrap it up. I think it's in Mark chapter 7. But he answered and said unto them, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. However, they worship me in vain, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men as the dipping of pots and cups. And I like where he says it, and many other things you guys are doing. Just a lot of stuff you're doing in the name of God. And he said to them, do you do well to set aside the commandment of God so that you may keep your own tradition? A fiddler on the roof. So I think where it talks about vain worship, they have the right God, but they are going about worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And I think if anything, that's where we would be probably tripped up. But God doesn't want us to stay there, like side-focused on places and things and ceremonies and rites and rituals. And if we're, good, if we're doing it right and wrong and... You know, if you cross yourself, you started to from the, the right rather than the left. Or you see people get all confused with, man, and then they get superstitious. Maybe I started down below and I went up and I didn't go this way or that way. And man, I wonder if God's going to reject me. And there's so many things that we could just start off and it becomes a superstition. And then we project onto God. If we do it wrong, the bad things are going to happen. And God's like, that's vain worship. It's just like traditions of men. It's commandments. And they become, they become so primary but they're so unimportant in the scheme of true worship. So, in closing here, let's look at some thoughts. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Like, honestly, have you really received him? You could sit in church, but sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian, right? <laughs> Just like I could sit in IHOP, and sitting in IHOP doesn't make me an international pancake. Have you really received Jesus? Have you seen yourself as a religious lost person, such as Nicodemus? Or have you seen yourself as this sinning Samaritan woman? Right? You have like the, the goody two-shoes and the batty two-shoes, right? <laughs> In chapters 3 and 4. What type of worshiper would you see yourself as? False worshiper? Vain worshiper? True worshiper? God, where he says, God desires such to worship him. That word desire means that he is really after you. 
it really, the word desire, I didn't even expand on it, but it means hot pursuit. It just means that he is really bent and seeking with his eternal energy these types of people that will just connect with him on that level. Not forcing you, not tricking you, not trying to turn your arm, not flattening your tire to get your attention. He's not, he's not that way. He's just, he loves you and he's trying to, he, he just wants this relationship with you. We have the living water. It might seem like a small trickle. It might seem like someone's kinking the hose. But we have this spring that just, just continually flows in our life. We have it by free. Let's go freely give out what we freely got by God's grace. There's Nicodemuses out there. There's Samaritan women out there. So let's go be the church, church. Right? Let's go do that. And as you do that, as you hand out a bag, let's say, hey, this is on behalf of Grace Baptist Church. I want to give this to you. Oh, great. Do you, do you guys, what, what do you guys do at that church? Do you guys, uh, what's your music like? What's, um, what's the building like? What, are you, what kind of programs do you got? Um, what's your kids' ministry like? And all good questions. But just be aware. What's really going to change their life? Right? Just be aware. I just want you to use this. If you get anything from this, just leave here being aware of where the conversation goes to avoid that connection with the living water, the living Lord. They're going to do it. And it's not even them intentionally. It's almost like it's it's spiritual warfare is what it is. Let's just call it what it is. It's spiritual warfare, and they, the spirit of the, of the God of this world doesn't want them to understand the water of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully you'll leave here encouraged and a little bit more, I don't know, passionate or uh, dialed in to engaging with people that need what you got. Let's stand and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for you. I thank you that we have, that you, I was so thirsty, I didn't even know it, and you came and you sought me out, and you offered me this free gift of everlasting life and the spring of everlasting water. Lord, I, I don't want to hoard it. I know I got it for free, and, and encourage me, Lord. I know I've been really slack on my missionary personal evangelism. Lord, I don't want to be that way. And I just pray that you would just motivate me, motivate your church, and encourage us, Lord, through this discouraging corona crazy COVID times that people that have lost jobs and lost income and lost motivation or lost perspective, I pray, Lord, that you would just re-energize us uh, as this church. Help us to be just an impactful witness and testimony for you in this community in this neighborhood i pray for the upcoming things that we could just be sensitive to people's need uh, whether they be like nicodemus or this samaritan woman everyone needs jesus and so lord give us the grace uh, to give out the grace that we so freely received i pray this all in jesus name amen